Well, while the world seems to be in chaos, we will gather to reason together, as Isaiah 1 says, and platform off of some great text in God's Word to assemble some truths that I think will be helpful and pertinent, perhaps as pertinent as the headlines. So before we dive into it tonight, let's pray together if you're all settled now. Let's pray. God, we do think about our world, our culture, the nation we live in, and recognize, as you've asked us to do and commanded us to do, that this world needs our prayers. We need to intercede for our country. We recognize the folly of sin and the illogical nature of fallen minds that so often just frustrate us. I think of Psalm 119, how indignation seizes our hearts when we're in step with your spirit because of the lawlessness and sin and the lies of our, our world. We just know that Satan has a heyday so often by uh, doing what he does in our day. And we pray, God, that you'd allow this culture in which we live to stabilize. As the scripture says, we should be praying for leaders so that we can live in peace, be able to do our work, kingdom work, without chaos uh, circling around us, without the oppression of our government, just unencumbered and unhindered from those forces. And yet we know that if it's not the government, it's something else. It might be our workplace. It might be the people around us could be family members. We know we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers and the spiritual forces of darkness that surround us. And God, that's why it's so important for us to always go back to the truth of your word, to do what we're doing tonight, to open your word with a sense of uh, trying to understand the issues and topics that affect every generation of Christians. And so God, give us understanding tonight. I'll let this be a very uh, helpful uh, and insightful night as we go through your text of scripture here tonight and try to understand how you'd have us respond to some of the issues of our day. Thank you, God, for our study. Hard to believe we only have one week left, but I pray that tonight would be good and helpful, and next week would be a great cap on our series of understanding sin and humanity, fallen humanity from a biblical perspective. So guide us tonight, enliven our minds, give us the ability to give great and, and focused attention to what we're doing. And I just pray you'd be honored by our thoughts as well as by the uh, lecture tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, let's begin with something that I think is fundamental for so many things that we've dealt with throughout our semester, and that is rethinking the composition of human beings. And while we didn't get into the full-blown debate regarding dichotomy and trichotomy and all of that, you did hear from me that I think there's no real doubt in the scripture when it comes to the simplicity of the way it is stated. Passages like this in Genesis 2 verse 7, that the Lord formed the man out of the dust of the ground, were made biologically the same material you can find in the soil, and, and, and then he breathes into our nostrils. There's the supernatural endowment of who we really are. He breathes into the nostrils of Adam, in this case, the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. He becomes a living soul, if you will, as the scripture says, because he's made up of two composite parts. He's made up of, of material and immaterial. So let's talk first uh, and just review for a second that idea of that immaterial part of who we are. And sometimes I guess I'm prone to err on the side, and perhaps that's through my illustrations, on the side of thinking about who we are in terms of the software of who we are, the spirit that we actually are, and minimizing the physical side of that. And yet that is... The consistency of who you've been throughout your life, though all the physical, atomic, cellular components of your body change and constantly change. What remains the same in your existence is your software, who you actually are, your spirit. The Bible teaches that very clearly. That part is intangible. It doesn't take up space. It's invisible. You can't see it. 
Uh, it's finite, and, and lest we think something invisible and something intangible is eternal, it's certainly not. Uh, the only one that has any descriptive discussion in the Bible as preceding this life on earth would be Christ, and that's continual throughout the Gospels. But for us, your life began, I, as we've argued, at conception, and you became a living being at that particular point. Finite, restricted to one place is what I mean by that, limited in terms of time and dependent upon our maker, created, of course, by God and endowed As we've said throughout this series, and perhaps it's too trite of a phrase right now in our thinking, but intellect, emotion, and will, that we have the ability to to think, to reason, to comprehend, to understand, to, in your mind, plot and plan and strategize, uh, and then enabled to have emotions, feelings, responding to whatever it might be, the stimuli of your mind or even your body in various ways that you would subjectively and often, as we say, existentially experience something. And then lastly, of course, enable to choose and decide to pass judgment, to be volitional. Uh, intellect, emotion, and will, that's a good, I, I suppose, moniker or handle that we can hang on to in thinking through the immaterial part of us. So when God says he creates man in his own image, he's not talking about the material part because as John 4 says, he's spirit, he's not material, he's not physical. So when we think about who we are and what part of us is made in God's image, it certainly is the immaterial part, our spirit. This is the part that is accountable to God. This is the part of us that's going to live on after your biological death. Immaterial part. And then, of course, we have a material body, which we've dealt with and talked about, the creation of that material body. It is alive, just like your spirit is, and I think that's profound and important. Talked about the difference even in DNA and the idea of the structure of who we are being distinct from an immaterial thing, a rock. You know, living things are different, and our bodies are alive. They're physical, they're tangible, obviously, and they will... The Bible says, go on in a resurrected state for eternity at the resurrection. The Bible says that's true. And sometimes I think we miss this for non-Christians as well as Christians. There's a resurrection, as Paul says, for the just and the unjust. And everyone lives encased and embodied as we are right now, only in a perfect body and an eternal body. Now, here's some words I think that may help balance out a little bit of the misunderstanding that I present, and, and I confess that I present, in trying to help us think about hardware and software, that you are software, you're not hardware, you live inside of hardware. These words, carefully chosen, to try and give you a sense that it's more than just being encased, although that's true. I don't back down from that. We are spirit. That's who we are. You happen to be encased in, in some kind of physical container. But even in saying that, your container is either like, let's just for, you know, in terms of example, it's either female or male. And you see yourself and define yourself that way, the craziness of our current culture notwithstanding. And all of those things are determined in terms of your, your biological life. And that helps me get to that next word that I've used there for you, and that's the word enmeshed. There's something so, in God's design, so necessary and so intended in having your spirit be encased in in biology that those two are, in, in some ways, interdependent. That's too strong of a word, I suppose, because if you die in a car accident tonight, you'll find that your software is not dependent on your hardware. And yet, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, to have a separation of hardware and software is to be, as he puts it, naked, which is a description of something, at least in our fallen state right now, is very unnatural and uncomfortable. And so, it may be an oxymoron there, uh, to be unclothed is is unnatural. And obviously it is, take your clothes off right now, this is not a directive. 
sensitive, you'll feel very uncomfortable and feel very unnatural in the room uh, of clothed people. That's bad illustration. But the point that I'm making is when you are separated, as we would say, disembodied at your death, that will not be the norm. That will not be right. It will be abnormal. It will not be a functional existence that you were made to live in. Like the angelic beings, they're totally fine being disembodied because they were never designed to be embodied. So in that regard, the order that we are as human beings is in some way ontologically or in terms of the ingredients and, and the, 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 the design of God, the way he's designed it, uh, that we are not really complete without our hardware. Hardware meshed in software, I think that's an important thing for us to say as I set up our discussion for tonight because I want to talk about the implications for embodied spirits and then talk about specifics for the remainder of our time. So let's think about the implications of this that shouldn't be hard to think through. You are an embodied spirit. You live right now for the next so many years until you meet your maker in this embodied thing, this body of yours, this biological unit. And what you should know without a lot of proof, I I would think I don't need a lot of time on this point, but you need to see that the Bible clearly teaches and you've experienced for all the years you've been on the planet that your spirit, your software can affect your your hardware, that your spirit and the state of your spirit can determine a lot of things about your biological existence. For instance, and this is a classic text in in, uh, Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, when David was guilty for having stolen his, his neighbor's wife immorally. And he says, when I kept silent about this, and I know this is highly poetic, uh, but I mean, this is clearly the reality for all of us. And we know what it is to sin and not confess it and be running from that conviction from God. He says, my bones wasted away. Now, again, that's even a literary description of not just the white, strong, sturdy, calcified parts of his body were hurting, but the whole of his body. He's physically wasting away and hurting through my groaning all day long. And we know what it is to be physically sick. And he's saying, because of my guilt and my unwillingness to confess my sin, which is a complete software problem, he says, my hardware was hurting. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. God doesn't have hand that has any weight. God was not materializing a hand as David lived in the 10th century BC. This is not about him getting on a scale and saying, I weigh more now. This is about something on his software, feeling the convicting sting of God's presence, knowing that he wasn't right with God. And now he's having things like this. His strength, which is clearly a description of his biology, was dried up as by the heat of summer. And we know what it's like to be in a hot place in the desert in the summertime and you feel physically drained. So this is something you can read and you can see it and you can look in your life and recognize, yeah, that's really true. It may be an easy observation, but it's one that you need to make as you look broadly at our culture. Our culture that's becoming increasingly naturalistic in the way it addresses every problem in the physical body seems to neglect all the issues of our spiritual entity, our spiritual reality, and they don't recognize this enmeshed and, and, and at least for now, interdependent relationship between body and spirit. And you find a lot of people getting physical remedies for what are actually spiritual problems that simply just affect their biology because... Their spirit is not right for whatever the reason might be. The previous chapter puts it this way. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Different context here. He says, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief. And that's another Hebrew idiom. The idea of him being wearied and overcome physically. 
my soul and my body also. These two things together. My life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. So I feel something emotionally. The emotional part of who we are, sorrow, is part of our spirit. Intellect, emotion, and will. I get emotion in the software and now my strength, my body, is struggling. For my life is spent with sorrow, my years with sighing, my strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. Different context, same problem. And in this case, I think you'll find, just by way of example, if you look at the guilt in the Bible and how often it's associated with physical problems, I think then you can extrapolate into our culture when no one wants to look at spiritual problems. And I'm not talking about mystical, demonic activity, although that could be a case study, a very unique one, but we could look at that and see how demonic activity relates to physical expressions. We did that in our angelology series. But all I'm saying is how often we overlook what the Bible presents to us chronically as a consistent connection. If you're hurting, if you're physically hurting, you need to look beyond just biology because our enmeshed and embodied spirits are so interdependent, at least for the current time. You follow that? And and do you see, can you read between the lines of what I'm saying? When so often our culture rushes just to take a pill for whatever their problem might be, when in reality there are a lot of other issues the Bible would have us address in terms of our own spirit, which might, I mean, and this could open up Pandora's box tonight, but there are so many things that go beyond guilt. Although guilt, I would say, is probably the most poignant the most painful and stinging physical effect on a physical body that someone has. And in pastoral ministry, as pastors, we deal with this all the time. We find a lot of people struggling after they run to their doctor for various things. And in reality, they've got a sin problem that they've covered up and haven't dealt with. And it's amazing how their biology seems to follow the healing of their spirit to kind of mix metaphors there, to come, come clean with God. All right. Well, let's think of it this way as well. Letter B, physical effects, spirit. Now think this through. Who you really are is your spirit, your intellect, emotion, and will. That's the real you. And you are in the cockpit of this biology. But we need to realize that it works both directions. For instance, Proverbs chapter 31, verses 4 through 7, as the concern about alcohol comes to the fore in the Proverbs, it says, It's not for kings, O Lumel. It's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink. Now, we know what wine contains. We know what strong drink is. That's just a stronger form, higher alcoholic content. I mean, that's a compound that has sugars and proteins and, and ethanol and all the things in it that, that change the chemistry of someone's bloodstream. That's what that does. And it says, don't do that lest they, they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. Now, here's moral decisions that are being made and clearly being affected by what's going on in their biology. Now, we know that it works at times in situations, and we'll look at this later tonight, in ways that are medicinal and helpful. For instance, give strong drink, which is all they really had in terms of changing the the biology of someone's life. I mean, they weren't expert in, in pharmacology at this point. So what they've got is strong drink, potent alcoholic beverage. Give that to the one who's perishing. When you're perishing, you're hurting. And wine to those who are in bitter distress. Well, that's interesting. That's a software issue. Bitter distress is something you'd say about your soul, not about your body. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Now, alcohol provides, because it's one of the few things in the scripture that we have, as a strong physical catalyst 
it becomes a physical catalyst in someone's body. And the Bible keeps, I mean, this is one example, but there are several at how often it speaks to the difference it makes in one's moral judgments, in one's attitude toward their emotions, their sorrow in this case, or whatever it might be. So it works both ways. Now, that's the establishment of what we want to start with tonight. If we think about the composite of the human life, physical and spiritual, material and immaterial, and then we want to think about, okay, these are intertwined or enmeshed in some way, so as one affects the other and vice versa. With that in mind, let's talk about some biblical allowances in the scripture. Biblical allowances. And all of these, you'll see the way I've stated them there, they all come with a contrasting limiter. You know, we're going to say this is something that is allowed in Scripture, and it obviously has a limit. And I guess you could say, as I don't know, the old adage in America goes, too much of any good thing is not, not good. It becomes counterproductive. And so in all of these, we have, we have limiters. So let's look at it. First one, let's talk about this. Physical deprivation. It's allowed. But what's not allowed in Scripture is asceticism. Asceticism which is an interesting word that comes from the Greek language that means to exercise. But it had in its usage in Greek the idea of exercising my will to say no to things that would normally be indulged in. In other words, let me, I'll take you to the next word. The cognate word or the first cousin word that came from the word in Greek, exercise, is the word that ended up being used later in history for the word monk. The monk would take all these vows to say, I'm, I'm not going to have a lot of stuff. I'm going to give up on material possessions. I'm not going to live with marital relationships. I'm going to live in some out-of-the-way place in a monastery alone and away and strictly focus. That idea of monk came from the word exercise, which meant I'm going to deprive myself from things, which is much what exercise is. You get on the treadmill, you want to get off takes me about three minutes. I'm ready to get off. And you say no, because you're there to exercise. So you put yourself in a situation that is painful. Now, let's make the distinction, because this is not an easy distinction in scripture. Think about what does the Bible say, biblical anthropology, about how we deal with our physical body when it relates to depriving our physical body. Even when I say that, what comes to mind in an allowance in the scripture? Fasting, right? You think immediately of fasting. There's an example of what it was even legislated in the Old Testament law one day a year to fast on Yom Kippur and and even was put in Hebrew to deprive yourself. But then there's condemnation in the scripture about asceticism. So let's give you some examples of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. Paul says... I do not run aimlessly. Now, again, Paul's always using these analogies and listing illustrations. So now we've got this picture of athletics, which gives us the idea of even exercise or discipline. And I'm not running aimlessly. I know the track and I'm moving toward it. And then he shifts to another athletic metaphor, that of boxing. I do not box as one just beating the air. I'm not just random in all this, not just chaotic. But, he says, back to the reality of his ministry, I discipline my body... And I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, you can think about fasting, which was a voluntary activity, oftentimes in response to things, but sometimes in preparation for things. And you can see where if someone wanted to have the kind of discipline in their volition, or even discipline in their rationale or their intellect... They would learn to have that kind of control in their lives by disciplining their bodies. 
And because they're enmeshed and encased individuals, if I can learn to keep my body under control and tell it what to do when it wants to do something else, like eat a sandwich for lunch, but I'm going to fast today, if I can get disciplined in saying no to the impulses of my biology, then in my thought life and in my thinking and in my planning and plotting and strategizing, whatever it might be, I can learn the same discipline in my own spirit, which is really who you are and really what matters. So the connection in scripture, whether it's fasting or Paul's kind of veiled, you know, description of his own behavior. And we want to know, well, what do you do to discipline your body? What are you talking about? See, he doesn't give us that in this particular text and doesn't give us a lot of information on that in any of his letters. But the idea is he's in some kind of pattern in his life to discipline his body in a certain way. And you, if you remember the old translation, some translations talk about buffet his body, which sounds like asceticism. And yet, the scripture condemns asceticism. Colossians chapter 2, verse 23. And here's our word, translates straight across into English. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. Now, the people he's slamming at this point are the ascetics and those who, who deny all these things that you shouldn't do. In the context, you might remember, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, don't do all of these physical things. He says, indeed, they have an appearance, that self-deprivation of of wisdom in promoting, though, here's the deal, self-made religion. It's a pattern or a system of approaching God, but they're deciding the rules on this. It's self-made. And asceticism, there it is, a kind of physical exercise of my body that has become, in its usage in Greek, to mean more than just exercise, but something in terms of, and it's coupled with the word that helps us, that severity, that, that sense in which I'm being, I'm being hard on my physical body. He says, in severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now compare that to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 in your mind. Wait a minute. You just said, Paul said he's buffeting his body or controlling or discipline his body so he can learn self-control. And we can assume things like you want your thought life to be pure. You want your uh, discipline in doing what you do in terms of study and teaching to be something that's, that's disciplined and rigorous. And so you're treating your body in a rigorous way to promote this kind of software or spiritual discipline. And it seems to work in your life. And now all of a sudden you're talking to the Colossians saying, well, all those people that have all those ascetic rules of self-denial and severe treatment of the body, oh, it's no good. It, it's of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You might want to put in your own thinking, parentheses, unless it is of value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Because clearly you said there is a kind of asceticism. Let's not call it that because that's taken on the nature of a negative term in the Bible. But at least a kind of bodily discipline that is positive, that does stop the indulgence of the flesh. So, much like a lot of things in the scripture, we have to say this is a condemnation of a kind of activity that is an end in itself. In other words, a lot of the religious activities that were condemned were condemned not because they were a means to some spiritual end or some godly end, but they felt like they were godly just for doing it. I often talk about checking the box. And in their minds, they'd check the box if they treated their body in a particular way or refused to engage in this thing or that thing. And they said, well, I'm being godly. Look at what I just did. And Paul says, no, no, I'll deny myself things and I'll discipline my body and keep it under control 
because in, in the end, I'm keeping myself from disqualifying myself. There's things that it could disqualify my life that my intellect, emotion, and will could engage in, but there is a connection. To me, it's a means to an end. And for some people, it's an end in themselves. It's a kind of form, a self-made religion that really isn't doing the thing that real godly fasting would do. Now, with that in mind, go back to the way Jesus talked about fasting. Remember when he told people in the beginning of the book of Matthew about the idea in the Sermon on the Mount that there are a lot of people that go out there and fast and they do it to do what? Just to be seen by men, to make sure that people would realize how godly they were. Even prayer, the way they prayed on street corners loudly and all of that and made a scene. And God kept saying, Jesus kept saying things like this, go and talk to God in the inner room. Don't make a show of it. We're going to give. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, which is a hyperbolous way to say when they're blowing trumpets, it isn't about that. It's a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. Fasting's not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. So physical deprivation. Let me just say this. Your Christian life should be characterized, or I should say this, you are allowed to have a Christian life that is characterized by bodily discipline, by deprivation, by not giving your body everything it wants. And those, are, those can be neutral things. For you to eat today, not a sin. But you can deprive yourself those things as long as it's to a biblical, for a biblical purpose and not as an end in itself. All right, let's look at another one. Physical exercise. Now, I struggled with the limiter on this because I have a verse that helps put everything in priority. And then you have an experience in your modern day life that should be obvious. But you know, the, the Bible would not condemn, though it gives very little attention to it, to say, okay, you're enmeshed in a biological unit in this hardware to exercise that without a means to an end, but not for a religious purpose. Not to be able to say, here, look at me, I'm godly, I'm doing this thing. That would fall into the category of asceticism. But to train your body physically is allowed in Scripture. Matter of fact, here's the text that should come to mind if you know your Bibles. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. When he's commanding Timothy, his protege, he says, have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Rather now, he uses this word, agonizomai, train yourself. Be willing to go through difficult things for godliness. Now, the context isn't physical at that point, but he knows people are going to rush in their minds to the physical, and even Paul engages in physical, rigorous behavior of some kind, disciplining his body so it would keep itself under control. He says, well, let's talk about that. Bodily training, he says, it is of some value. Well, there's the biblical allowance. I can't say that you shouldn't do something as a Christian that the Bible says there's some value in. But godliness which is really what he's commanding him to do in verse 7, train yourself for godliness, he says, is of value in every way. As it holds a promise for the present life, and here's the contrast, and also for the life to come. What's the point? Physical exercise does hold promise for the present life. But you can look throughout the scripture, no matter what you're dealing with, whether it's someone's appearance or whether it's someone's performance when it comes to their physical bodies, and the Bible just says it's not that important because it's not eternal. doesn't mean it's not important for the, for the temporal time. So that's great. Fine. The Bible allows for that, and there are people that are into that more than others, and that's great. But obsession, I think you know it when you see it, don't you? Even if the product of what they're hoping to gain by their physical obsession is never accomplished, you can see people that spend way too much time on this. And often when I see it in our church, I'll be the loving pastor that I am, and I will, I will always 
go up to those that I see obsessing on these things, and I will start to query about how much time they spend, how often they get involved in this, and when I see that there's all this time, I'll make this deal. Maybe some even in this room have had me say this to them about something. It happens often with the physical aspects of physical life and all these physical things that they do. I'll say, can you give me half of that time? And let me invest half of those hours that you spend every week on things that I'll assign to you here at the church just in terms of ministry and and do that for me for six months. And then let's, at the end of six months, let's figure out whether or not the, the trade will continue or whether you go back to all your time. If you think, for instance, someone says, well, I'm spending 20 hours, I'm doing these marathons and these triathletes and all that. Say, great. There's nothing wrong with you being physically engaged and doing all of that. That's great. But if you're spending 20 hours a week at this, I, I often, and I, don't, I have no magic number. It's scary to throw out numbers. But when I see that it's too obsessive, in my opinion, I will say, as the loving pastor that I am, I will say, give me half of those hours. Why don't you cut it down to 10 hours? Give me the other 10. Let me invest 10 hours a week. I'll put a schedule together for you of things you can do here to serve the body of Christ. Do that for six months. After six months, if you don't think that was a good trade, you can take all those hours back and keep going. And I don't always get, anybody, I don't always get everyone taking me up on that offer, but when they do, I don't think I have anybody to go back because they recognize the truth of this verse. Bodily training is of some value, but when you're obsessing in that, give me, give me some of that back. Godliness, you'll find, has value in every way. You'll find out the surpassing value of giving your time and effort to something eternal. So, you should all care about the physical, biological unit you're in within reason. Got that? Didn't need to even come tonight to hear that or know that. You already knew that, didn't you? Letter C. Culinary indulgence. I'll just call it that. That's great. The Bible is all for that. But you are prohibited from allowing that exercise of feeding your biological unit, your body, your hardware... There's a limit that the Bible uses, the word it uses is gluttony. So let's talk about both sides of that. That's kind of small print, but can you see it? Can you read it? First Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Now the Spirit expressly says, Paul writes to Timothy, In latter times some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. So they start with us, they're a part of us, they got Bibles, for at least in our context, in their lap, they're all about it. But now they're starting to chase these deceitful spirits, the teaching of demons. In other words, Satan is active in trying to take the truth and twist it. That's his whole MO. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Satan loves to disguise himself as an angel of light. The worst kind of demonic activity in our world is not guys drinking blood from skulls, as I like to say at some thrash metal concert. The, the, the worst kind of demonic activity takes place with people with Bibles in their hands. And that's the expert work and probably the most damaging work that Satan does. So, There are people that will start with us, but then they will devote themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars. There's a lot of that going on. Whose consciences have been seared. So they're doing things they shouldn't do, and they no longer care. they got a callus over their conscience. They do things like this, which in our day it seems just the opposite, but follow the, the argument of the ascetics of the first century. They forbid marriage can't get married, although there's still aspects of religious folk and thinking and theology that thinks that's godly, and require abstinence from foods. Now, he takes that phrase, the abstinence from foods that God created, and he's going to explain this now, to be received with thanksgiving, and clearly that includes marriage. But the focus on this particular text is food, created to be received with thanksgiving. So there's the purpose clause. God made food. You're not, you don't just go and, and lean against a tree and get your nutrients through your ear or sleep with a plant in your bed and, and get all charged up for the day. 
God allowed you with taste buds and teeth and all these varieties of really good foods to be able to put things in your mouth that will actually fuel your body. And he says the reason for all this food is so that you can take it and say thanks for it. And the real focus of his, of his intention is to give it to people that believe him, who trust him and know the truth. That's great. I love that verse on so many levels that I know all the good food in the world is created for us. The intention of God created it that we would do it and receive it with thanksgiving. For everything created by God is good. Context, obviously not everything on the planet, but everything that God creates, like the foods of this planet, are good, including marriage. And nothing is to be rejected, which is what these false teachers were doing, if it is received with thanksgiving. God loves to give his people these things, and he wants them to say thanks. I use the word indulgence, and I use it strategically. Indulgence is a great word. Indulgence is a word that has a sense of deriving pleasure, intentionally deriving pleasure from it. God wants us to indulge in food. He wants you to take pleasure in eating food. Now, saying that leads us to think about the problem of gluttony. Too much of a good thing is not a good thing. Titus chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, when Paul was talking to Titus, another up-and-coming pastor in training. He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, because he was on the island of Crete, says in his writings or poetry, Cretans are always liars. They're evil beasts and lazy gluttons. Now think about that. Lying's wrong, being evil, you know, and brutish is wrong. Being a lazy glutton, those things often go together. That's wrong. This testimony is true. Therefore, here's the response to those three things. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So I know I shouldn't lie, and I know I shouldn't be an evil brute, and I know I shouldn't be a lazy glutton. The idea of that, someone who gorges himself on food, the Bible says that needs a rebu- that calls for a rebuke from a pastor, and the pastor should rebuke that kind of behavior. Clearly a biblical principle. Philippians 3 maybe gives us a different image of this word picture when he says, talking about the false teachers, their end is destruction. False teachers are going to be destroyed. Their God, small g, their idol, is their belly. Well, that's, there's a vivid image. They're just going to obey their, their appetites. Now, that's probably representing a lot more than just their food. But clearly, I mean, that's the problem with a glutton. He's always obeying every impulse for food. And they glory in their shame and their minds are set on earthly things. So gluttony is hard to define. Unlike those obsessing with exercise, it may be harder to determine when you see it. And usually we're seeing it in ourselves. We should, I think, be sensitive to seeing it in ourselves. But to recognize the balance between God's allowance for you to enjoy a variety of great foods on the planet, but to recognize that enjoyment can't be turned into obeying every appetite that you have and making your belly your God. If you become someone who can fall into the category of a lazy glutton, the Bible says you need to be sharply rebuked. All right. Letter D. Medicinal drugs, but not recreational. There are things, and again, as I said, the early church and the Old Testament world was very limited on things that can change the composition of your bloodstream that would deal with your body in some dramatic way. Obviously, food is a drug, I guess, technically, in that it changes the chemistry of your your body. But of course, there are potent ways to do that in the ancient world, and that was through alcoholic beverages. 1 Timothy 5, verse 23 said to Timothy... No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So there's something that alcohol, alcohol could do for Timothy in his 
frequent ailments. Now, again, there wasn't a lot in the medicine cabinet of the first century. You usually had oil, olive oil, and you, you, you could use alcohol in your metaphorical medicine cabinet. Of course, you didn't have a medicine cabinet, but that was the idea. You would put the salve or the oil on something uh, topical, and then if you had an ache or pain, you had alcohol in varying degrees of strength that you could drink. And so here we have someone, a pastor, who's abstaining from alcohol, by the way. He has to be told to take some. So he's not drinking alcohol. And he's told to take some because he needs the medicinal effect that will change the way he feels. And as long as that's to fix a problem, that's all peachy for for the Apostle Paul. Proverbs 23, though, and you don't have to really guess at what the Bible thinks about recreational use of things that make us feel a certain way. If you drink for the buzz of it, to put it in modern day terms, the Bible would say that's wrong. And we'll look at more passages in this later as we get into the next section, but clearly those that are known for that, those be not among the drunkards or among the gluttonous eaters of meat, Proverbs 23 says, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty. This is bad for them. It affects them in negative ways. And slumber will clothe them with rags. That's the kind of lazy lifestyle where they find recreation in getting buzzed or drunk and getting filled up with with food, and it's going to lead to poverty. And this is something every parent should be telling their kid. And as he says, listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she is old. A great verse to keep signing your notes to your kids with. Love mom, Proverbs twenty three twenty two. <laughs> I like the first line. Listen to your father who gave you life. I do use that phrase from time to time. You can ask my children. It does come up every now and then. I'm your father who gave you life. Listen to me. Not every day. Not every day. Occasionally. It's a biblical line. Did you, you knew that was in the Bible, didn't you? All right. All right. Now, more on that because this is where we're headed. Drugs and alcohol, we need to talk about those topics. So let's do that. As we get from allowances to prohibitions. Prohibition number one, there are no food prohibitions. You cannot tell me I can't eat certain kinds of foods. That's against what the Bible teaches. I already quoted this passage, but look at it again. 1 Timothy 4.3. Notice that the abstinence from certain foods is tied in this text to the teaching of demons. Can you catch that? I don't know why Christian publishers don't catch that because they still occasionally print those books under the heading of Christian living that are nothing more than a repackaging of some Old Testament dietary laws and all the great things that should be coming out of our our lives if we just eat these ways because this is God's menu from the Old Testament and you just need to recognize you have that's a demonic thing to say and it's a demonic thing to print and... um, you know, and it goes further than that with people like, uh, you know, the, the Adventists and Ellen G. White and a lot of people that, that commanded that you would please God if you abstain from certain foods. As they used to say, your life force, the Adventists would say, is disrupted in a negative, immoral way by certain foods that you eat. Meat, for instance, will do that to you. It will steal your life force and it will uh, lead you to immoral thoughts and behavior. All of that is nothing more than the doctrine of demons. It couldn't be clear, First Timothy chapter 4. So no one is to do that. No one is to say you can't get married and no one is to say you can't eat foods. And by the way, I'm not saying that in an instance by instance. I'm thinking as a philosophy, as a theology. There'd be times maybe when I say we're not going to eat right now, you can't eat that or don't get married today. Mark chapter 7, verse 18 and 19. If you don't know this passage, it should be part of your 
arsenal if you ever run into a cult group or a fringe group or some subculture in Christianity that keeps talking about dietary restrictions. Mark chapter 7 verses 18 and 19, do you not see that whatever goes into a person, Jesus said, from the outside cannot defile him? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person on the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and it is expelled? Mark then makes this, this editorial comment. Thus, he, Christ, declared all foods clean. Now, in the Old Testament, there's a lot of things I couldn't eat. But in the New Testament, the Bible makes very clear that Christ comes on the scene. He fulfills the Old Testament ceremonial law, which included the festivals, the Sabbath days, and the dietary restrictions. And in this particular passage, Mark says, hey, just statements like this made it very clear that all the foods were clean. Because now we're dealing with moral issues, not ceremonial issues in the New Testament. And so no one can tell me these foods are off limits from a biblical perspective. Nothing makes that more clear than the Acts 10 scene where Peter gets this sheet that comes down out of heaven and all these unclean animals from an Old Testament Jewish kosher perspective crawl out of this thing. And God says to him, arise, Peter, get up, kill and eat, eat these animals. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now think about what a world-altering thing this was to have God in this vision tell Peter, have your first ham sandwich. This was a big deal. I mean, this was big. You can imagine all the things that you've been conditioned to think about those foods. And he admits, I've never had any. I've never had it. And the voice of him again said a second time, what God has made clean, as Mark said, Jesus had done very clearly in his teaching. And now God is saying clearly, hey, the food is no longer a prohibition. Do not call common. Do not call, that's the buzzword for unclean. Something was holy or something was common. Something was clean, something was unclean. Don't call it unclean. Don't call it unholy. Don't call it common. Now, this is a great text because if you know the context, this is where an Italian soldier was being won to Christ by Peter, the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, that was still Jewish, largely Jewish. And now you have this Italian who is now being witnessed to by Peter and God's prepping him with a dietary lesson. And that should help us explain why those rules were in the Old Testament. Now, follow this statement very clearly. The dietary restrictions of the Old Testament had to do with the social intercourse of people having meals and feasting together. They had nothing to do with, as people commonly write, periodically write, it seems, in these Christian publishing houses, the idea of your health. It had nothing to do with you having a healthier diet. Now, obviously, there are ways to eat healthy and there are ways to eat not so healthy. And in their day, they didn't have the abundance of food that we have. And I I get that. You could make the case that our problem is quantity, not, not as much as it is the quality. But that's not my point. The point is stop with all the arguments about this is all for dietary health reasons. The idea of him reversing this had to do with don't call the Italian Gentile an unclean person. I'm about to take you to his house and have you share the gospel with him. The dietary restrictions kept the boundaries and distinguished the Jews from the Gentiles. And that was something God chose to do with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament through dietary restrictions. If you want to add another one to this, and I didn't put this one on the screen, but you might want to jot down Romans chapter 13, verse 12. Now, here's what you have to do. You have to read this across the chapter division to chapter 14, verse 4. 13, 12 through 14, 4. Now, if you catch the last few verses of Romans 13, he talks about things like orgies, immorality, quarreling, jealousy, 
And he says, make no provision for those things. Do not do them. He condemns them in no uncertain terms. And then in the next chapter, chapter 14, Sunday school graduates know, this is the passage. He begins by saying, hey, some eat meat, some eat only vegetables. Hey, you know, the one who eats the meat shouldn't despise the one who abstains, and the one who abstains shouldn't pass judgment on the one who eats the meat. Now, He's saying this as he relates to the issue of harmony in the church and all these other things, but he's making this kind of eh, about the day of worship and the dietary restrictions, saying let's at least be careful with some people's conscience in this matter, but when it comes to moral issues, not going to compromise on those. Make no provisions for those. All I'm saying is if there was any attachment of, of superiority to the Old Testament dietary restrictions, if there's any concern in God's heart regarding the day that we worship, if there's anything that God had in terms of his concern that we prefer one dietary menu over another, here is a, a contrasting juxtaposition of moral and ceremonial. And one, he says, listen, stop making war an enemy over the ceremonial. Oh, listen, do not tolerate any moral infractions as it relates to things like sexual immorality, quarreling, jealousy, strife within the church. So clearly there should be no food prohibitions. And since that seems to be a perennial thing, or at least a seasonal thing that comes up in Christian communities like ours, and ours is big enough to have some people every now and then on the fringe start to lecture us about dietary restrictions. I just want to let you know there's no food prohibition. Now, you can start to say, well, if we harmonize the idea of what you just said about physical health and all that, it's okay for us to care about our bodies and exercise and this, well, then fine, great. I have no problem with that. You want to write a a cookbook that makes you feel healthy and good? Do that. But don't put God on the cover and hand it to me and say, this is the godly way to eat. I'm not going to buy it. And I certainly won't follow it. I can assure you of that (laughs) for many reasons. All right. No food prohibitions. The Bible does not allow us to do that in the new covenant. Sorry. And there shall be, among God's people, no intoxication. Intoxication. Here's one way that that is described. And we have to describe this from a biblical perspective. Wine is a mocker. It will, it will mock you. Strong drink is a brawler. Right? It'll fight you and get you to fight. And whoever is, now here's the, here's the phrase, led astray by them is not wise. When the intoxicant, whatever it is, starts to now take me in a direction, it begins to now move me. It begins to be something that takes the lead. Now I'm being led. I'm being intoxicated, as we would say. And the Bible makes clear in roundly condemning that from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. Ephesians 5.18, if you want a verse in the New Testament, it's clear as day. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. That goes beyond normality. It goes beyond proper common borders. That is when the chemical now takes over. Instead, if you want to make a contrasting analogy, think about being led by, influenced by the spirit. Don't let the wine lead you or whatever intoxicant you may be taking. Don't let that lead you, but let the spirit of God call the shots for you. How strong is this in in the New Testament? Couldn't be stronger than this statement. First Corinthians chapter five, verse 11. I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. You're calling yourself a Christian. If he's guilty of sexual immorality, that's how he's living. Greed. He's a covetous, greedy person. An idolater, whatever that might be. It may be like Philippians says, the God is his belly. A reviler. That's all he does is just revile people. (laughs) See a lot of that these days. A drunkard, someone who gets drunk, is led by the chemicals he ingests. 
or the swindler, the one who's always cheating, got the separate weights in his bag as he goes to the marketplace. He's making a buck immorally. Don't even have a meal. Don't even eat with such a one. So I cannot, if in your life, you let the alcohol or the drugs or whatever intoxicant it is that you may take to lead you, it becomes the thing that calls the shots and guides you. You become inebriated. That's your pattern. I'm not saying you're a fall down drunk 24 hours, but you keep doing this. I can't even have a meal with you, the Bible says. Not only me as the pastor, no one in this room who's following the, the, the word of God and in step with the spirit is allowed to even have a meal or have someone in their house who claims to be a Christian but lives that way. That's how strong the prohibition is in the New Testament. More on that as we continue. Bible also prohibits this, no addictions. I cannot be addicted to anything. Now, I've heard the arguments on this. Well, you're addicted to oxygen. You're addicted to water. Okay, I understand that. I am dependent on those things. I understand that. Addiction, though, is described this way in in the Bible. All things are lawful for me. Now, this is in quotes because that was what they were quoting to the Apostle Paul. His response is, yeah, but not all things are helpful. Not to mention that not all things are lawful. The only things that are lawful are things that are lawful. He talks a lot about the law in the book of 1 Corinthians. And he says, this is what the law says. And this is what you can do. And the law says you can't do that. And that's what you can't do. So there are things that are not lawful. Getting drunk, we've seen, is not lawful. But if something is lawful, they're going to say, look at all those things that are lawful. I can do anything that's lawful. He says, yeah, but some things that may be allowed are not helpful. And the things that, and then he quotes it again, all things are lawful for me. That's what everybody keeps saying. But he responds with this, but contrast, strong contrasting conjunction. I will not be dominated by anything. I won't let anything that may be allowed to become something that dominates me. That's the idea of addiction in the Bible. To put it another way, in contrast to what Paul said, we already quoted this in 1 Corinthians 9, 27. He says, I'll discipline my body. Here's a great phrase and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. When my body controls me, then that's the problem. Am I dependent on oxygen and water and and, and food? Yeah, I am. But even food ought to be in my life something that I can control and something that I'm, I'm able to say no to. That's what fasting is all about. I want to be able to use discipline in my life to be able to say my software is in charge of my hardware. I understand if I don't breathe and if I don't drink any water, eventually my body will die pretty quickly if I don't breathe. But to try and round out what I mean is mean by addiction, I want to look at phrases like this. The idea of dominate. This thing dominates my life. It's a focus of my life. I'm, I'm always thinking about this. It's something I, in this passage in 1 Corinthians 9, is really controlling me. I no longer control my body. This is something that has taken control. Okay, no addictions. I can have no food prohibitions. I can have no intoxication. I can have no addictions. With those parameters in view, let's talk about the warnings of Scripture. Number five. Let me start with this if we talk about drugs and alcohol, things like that. The Bible says I ought to obey the law. You know that. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. You live in California, in the United States of America. In California, the United States of America... How old do you have to be to drink alcohol? How old? Well, I'm 20, and I think I can handle it, and I'm not getting drunk. Is that okay? Discipler, Sunday school teacher, Christian, mature? No. There's no moral question here at all. It is black and white and obvious. There's nothing I... No. Well, the government, you know, I'm a child of the king, and it's not about... Listen, you... 
you're violating God's word. And he makes it so clear. He says, that's a God-given authority. As imperfect as it is, listen to my series on God's expatriates, as I suggested last week. If you didn't, that's very helpful to understand civil disobedience and when to be disobedient and all of that. I get all that, but things like that. In the state of California, in the United States of America, it says I'm inebriated, I'm impaired and intoxicated at what blood alcohol level? Point what? 08. Well, I don't feel impaired or intoxicated at 0.09. So I think I'm okay. I'm in control. You got the verses up there. I'm in control. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. And I, I, I saw at Costco now they're selling these little breathalyzer things. Have you noticed that? Buy one. That'd be a great thing because you need to understand that according to the state of California, you can't get behind the wheel or even there are laws about public intoxication. You understand that too, right? It'd be a great thing for everybody drinking. Get yourself a breathalyzer. I can buy you one for Christmas at at Costco. Okay. So there's all kinds of rules about when you can drink, when you're intoxicated, when you're drunk, when you're impaired, when you can drive, when you can't disorderly, drunk and disorderly laws on and on and on. Prescription medication, epidemic. It's as bad in Orange County or worse in Orange County, I suppose, than illicit drugs in Detroit, right? I mean, mean, we've got our own way that people are, let's, the word probably doesn't feel as stinging as it should. The recreational use of some chemical in my body that just happens to come through a pharmacy versus some guy on the street with an overcoat. Prescription drugs. When I use prescription drugs for something that they are not intended or prescribed for, Once my back surgery is over and I'm still popping the Vicodin, at some point I got to realize I'm doing this to feel this thing, this buzz, this particular feeling. Like I'm now, I'm breaking the law. Why? Because those are prescribed for a certain reason. You may even be coaxing your doctor to break the law. But you understand the point is, one thing I've got to start with when it comes to biblical warnings is I cannot be in, I cannot disregard the oversight and the legalities of my government. Lying to obtain a legal drug. You think that doesn't happen every day in our circles where people will lie to get the kinds of of drugs that they want, even though they're prescription drugs, just so that they can engage in something that makes them feel a particular way. Now, what are they doing? They're allowing their bodies to control them. And what they do, they're lying and breaking the laws to get those things. That is sin. Bible calls us to obey the law. And there's a million laws you can think of, I'm sure, that intersect with what I do in terms of my body, biblical intake. Let me keep going. Letter B. We need to realize legal doesn't mean righteous. And I was going to put it that way, but I put sinless because some of you will think I'm not sinning if it's legal. Now, that may have been something that needed a lot more commentary in the 1950s, but I hope now you recognize that should be obvious. Just because something's legal doesn't make it righteous, doesn't make it sinless. I just picked a verse. I mean, I thought, where can I go for this? It's all over the Bible. But I thought we read this. Was it this morning we read Daniel 3? Yeah, 3 and 4, right? I thought about the, the government there. And in this text, the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn and all those weird instruments he goes on to list, you are to fall down and worship the golden image of the king that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Just an example. Of course, in our day, no one's forcing us to buy a bong and smoke marijuana, but soon it will be legal in Orange County. You don't think it will. It's just a matter of time. And then you'll say, well, I can get a buzz off of my marijuana because it's legal. And so it's okay because God says, obey the government and the government says it's fine. Again, all the principles that we go back to in terms of 
the issues that go beyond government that we said were prohibitions, I, I, we, we need to look at. Medicinal drugs are obviously permissible. We looked at the passage, take a little wine for your stomach, not recreational. A lot of people will lie and claim that there's a medicinal need when in fact it's nothing more than recreational, and you know that. We're not stupid, right? I mean, come on. And again, I've heard all the arguments, and maybe, hey, if that's your thing, whatever. You're not going to answer to me. When you die, you're not going to see my face. They're going, okay, you're going to see Christ. And you think I'm unreasonable, Mr. Bible Thumper. You're going to meet the one who wrote the Bible, not the teacher of the Bible. And I know you think he's so cool, but he's holy. And you want to get through your life convincing all the people around you things you want to do to feel a certain way in your hardware. You'd better be careful. You'll have to answer to the living God one day. Just because something's legal doesn't mean it's sinless. Talk about, uh, you know, same-sex marriage in our country today, which has changed even in many states since we preached on it and taught on it in, in this series earlier in the semester. Don't need a lot of time on that. Letter C, we need to live wisely. Let me give you some great lines out of Ephesians chapter 5. This is Ephesians 5. At one time, you were darkness, Paul says. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. I love that. It gives us a a direction, a focus. A lot of people are always asking, what can I do and get away with it and still be okay with God? And, And God is always flipping that around saying, you need to be looking at what you can do to maximize things like things that are good and right and true. Live that way. Focus on how righteous and and holy and good and, and fruitful you can be, not how much you can get away with. So much so, he says, you should sit down and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. When you think about that, and you're making decisions about a lot of things, you've got to do more than just say what, what is allowed. We need to think about what is wise. Let me give you more of that passage. Philippians chapter 5, the next few verses, verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So here's a picture of my life contrasting with the lives of the people in the world. uh, Don't even speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. He then goes on to say, verse 15, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time. doesn't say good use of your time, the best use. He uses a superlative. The decisions aren't really between good and bad for us. That's how most people like to posit this whole thing, but really it's between better and best. And we're supposed to be making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So again, back to that idea in verse 9 that I'm supposed to try and find out what's pleasing to the Lord. Do not get drunk with wine. This is the first thing now that comes up is he's going to contrast it with walking or being filled with the Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine, but, uh, which is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. I just think it's interesting that the concept of alcohol comes up here in the midst of this discussion about being wise, seeking to please the Lord, having a life of distinction from the rest of the world, looking at the days that are evil around me, and trying to make the best use of my life, my time. And and that leads us to that question that is always asked. Well, clearly alcohol is allowed in Scripture. Clearly Jesus is drinking wine. He's making wine at the at the uh, wedding, wedding in Canaan in John 2. So why would Timothy abstain from it? Because by the time we get to, to the latter part of Paul's ministry, you've got his protege not having any wine at all. Paul has to tell him to take a little wine for his stomach. Why would that be? Well, when you read what Paul wrote to Timothy about leaders in the church, clearly the concerns are reflecting the concerns of the kings of the Old Testament that we talked about. Where the king said, you don't want to forget what's decreed. You want to be sharp. You want to be in control not only of your body, but of your mind. So not for kings to drink wine. So now you have the commands, which Paul doesn't say a leader can't drink wine in the church. 
But he does say you can't be addicted to that wine. That's part of the uh, requirement not only for the pastors, the presbyteros, but the diakonos, the deacons, the, the servant, ministry leaders. So if you know our church, I don't know if you're new to this church, you know that our pastors here have decided not to drink. So we don't drink alcohol at all. And some people get all torqued about that. And all I'm saying is, well, then you should get really torqued at Timothy. And then they're going to say, well, Paul told him to drink wine. He told him to drink wine for a medicinal reason. He didn't say, come on, you straight-laced young pastor. You should be going out and drinking uh, with the buddies there in Ephesus because you're not cool enough, which is really an argument that's been made today, unfortunately, by pastors. I have no authority to stand up in a church and say you should not drink alcoholic beverages. But I can say you need to be wise about it. And you need to, number one, never attack the people that have chosen not to drink wine alcoholic beverages. You also should understand there's something very different about the alcoholic beverages of the first century and the Old Testament than there was, than there is today. I was just rereading today for for the sermon, not for my pleasure reading, but the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey, when he speaks about the wine that was given to him and how they were preparing it for the people and the, the sweet wine, the pure wine that they had was then, uh, as it was just described, it wasn't commanded, just a description of it, was then diluted by 12 parts. So you had wine with 12 parts water. Now, I don't drink, I don't know this, but I'm assuming that's not the kind of wine you'd be used to drinking. Pliny, in Pliny the Younger's natural history, also speaks of it and the production of wine in, in the ancient world and speaks of an 8 to 1 ratio of water to pure wine. Guys that have written on this and studied this say the alcoholic content was probably very, very low, down between 1 and 3% alcoholic content, which is why, as the Bible says, often you'd have to linger long over your wine to get drunk. Now, they could make wine and did make wine, alcoholic beverages, what was called strong drink. There's three words in the Bible. The common word for wine, both in Hebrew and Greek, the word for strong drink, and the word for new wine. They all have different compositions. Strong drink was the heavy stuff, which clearly even in our day, obviously there's all kinds of ranges of, of alcoholic content. And you know how that works. You know how that works better than I do, I assume. But the point of this is, and I don't want to assume that you're all going out to the bar every night, but I'm just saying, I know that I'm in the minority by saying I, I don't drink wine, uh, alcoholic beverages. My point, though, is... If you look at the concern in the Bible about strong drink and the very severe warnings regarding that category of strong drink, and then you understand that beer today probably would be in the category of strong drink in the Old Testament and in the distinction in the New Testament that's rarely made, but sometimes, that idea of warning should be going with all alcoholic beverages that are on our shelves today. That is a concern that should lead some of us to say, well, I probably need to be more careful in my consumption of alcohol if you're going to choose to do that than even as it's described in in Scripture. Because Scripture seems to leave and does leave its harshest criticism for alcohol for that category of strong drink. The other thing I would say is when it comes to your making decisions about your relationship with alcohol, it'd be good for you to recognize what devastation certain aspects of society sees from this. In other words, uh, the coroner, the cops, the pastors, the counselors, the marriage and family counselors, if you just ask what is the common denominator in just about every problematic issue that we deal with, whether it's sexual immorality or whether it's violent crime or a husband that hits a wife or whatever it might be, the common denominator, nine times out of 10, if not 49 times out of 50, is, is alcoholic consumption. 
I know that you have the liberty to drink. And I'm not here to try and convince you not to, other than to say the command in Scripture is that you live wisely and you try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And you do understand that sometimes it's a bit of an apples to oranges comparison. I got lots of people I understand in different traditions where it's not only uh, allowed but encouraged in their church circles to drink. But I'm not of that mindset and I... um, see enough of the damage that it causes. You can go to the Mothers Against Drunk Driving website and just see. I think it's still the third most common way to die to, to get hit by a drunk driver. Maybe wrong with that. And by the way, you look through the Bible, you can find a lot of people abstaining. Uh, John the Baptist, Timothy, the Nazarites of the Old Testament, the kings of the leaders who were at least following the biblical command of Proverbs 31. Not to mention the drunks in the Bible. Think through the drunks in the Bible. Who's our first drunk in the Bible? Noah. How'd that work out for him? We're just celebrating the successful, you know, landing of our big barge. Everybody's cool. All the animals made it. Let's have a drink. We dealt with that in our ethnicities lecture, but that was a bad, bad, perverted scene of some kind. I think I wrote down some of the notorious drunks of the Bible here. Lot. Oh, yeah, that was next. Lot. That was cool. Lot got drunk. Ended up having sex with his daughter. Oops. Nabal. Thought about him. Abigail's husband. Dies after a night of drinking. Amnon, drunk when he was killed. King Elah from 1 Kings, killed in a drunken stupor. Epidemic in, in uh, Isaiah, verses, chapters 1 through 5. One of the things God slamming the nation against was their relationship to alcohol before the Babylonian captivity. Proverbs 23, which I didn't even have time to read, verses 29 through 35, talking about just the wonderful things that happen when you get drunk. I, I guess I could talk about alcoholism, but I think you know where I stand on all that, don't you? Do you notice the Bible doesn't talk about alcoholism? Well, it's an archaic, kind of old school. They don't know what's going on. We got it figured out today. The Bible's very clear that those who are drunkards who get saved uh, are now seen as former drunkards. They're no longer drunks because they don't get drunk anymore. I really take offense to people who go around saying that they're alcoholics when they haven't had a drink for 10 years. You're not an alcoholic. I know that goes against the cultural norms and, and ethics of our day, but I'll stand with Christ on this, and I will guarantee you, look, at, look me up in 50 years uh, when I'm dead. That's, that's a euphemism for when I'm dead. Uh, and, and we can chat on the other side about the kind of um, perspective of alcoholism and how it was uh, pitched in the 21st century. I assure you that's not God's view on the matter. Uh, there are things that people are addicted to and they need to break those addictions and they can through the work of the spirit, the accountability of God's body. I've seen many people, I, I've told you the story, some of you about a guy that I took into our home who vomited all over our guest room for several days as he was detoxing from all kinds of hard drugs, never took drugs again, became a pastor uh, many years after that and didn't have to go through any step. It was a one-step program. Uh, I said, come live with me, and we'll, I have no drugs or alcohol in my home, and we'll fix this problem. Had to buy a new mattress when it was all done, but we got him off of that, and he hasn't had an encounter since. I didn't script all what I was going to say in this particular section, other than to tell you, don't go away saying that I'm telling people that drinking is unbiblical, because I know many of you do, and some people are militant about drinking, but I am saying you need to be wise about it and stop throwing rocks at those that don't drink. And we're not trying to say we're better than anybody. I'm just, I don't want to play Russian roulette with my life or my family or the possibility that I'll become addicted to alcohol or be led away by it. I don't know. Was that raw enough? I don't, I don't know what else to say there about that. Live wisely. A couple other things that might be helpful. You need to focus 
on others' good, the good of others, probably how I should have said that, and not your rights. Do you have the right to drink? You have the right to drink. Go get a drink. But I think that if you really lived with a concern for others in our day, it might be different. And you do understand that I do believe that cultural mores change. Certain times, I think about smoking. I know you brought that up. You know, nicotine is an addictive element, obviously, compound. There was a time, I think of my grandfather, when I'd go to visit my grandfather's church when I was a little kid. Of course, I grew up here, but we would go to the south, and when church was out, everybody would step out on the patio and start smoking. Do you remember that, those days, old timers? No? Well, it didn't happen much here, at least not at our church, but out there it did. And no one thought twice about it. This was a good, solid Bible-teaching church, and everyone smoked. And, and I, I didn't think, you know, I thought I'm going on vacation, so I'm going to the smoky church, you know, and everybody smoke on the patio. And no one cared. Now, all I'm saying is, if I was a pastor in the 16th century in Germany, would you be saying what you're saying now? I'd be saying everything I'm saying now about the principles that I've just taught. Would I be drinking some watered-down beer in, in the 16th century in another place and time when that's, you know, when I don't have a range of things to drink? Perhaps. I don't know. Although I would think, I would hope to think, that I think Timothy was on to something that Paul never chided him for, other than to say from time to time he needed to take the only Pepto-Bismol they had in the ancient world, which is some wine. Nevertheless, if you focus on the good of others and not your rights, as the Bible says repeatedly, I think of this passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than ourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, which might be exercising your freedoms, which you are free to do, but also the interests of others. So when I drink, which I don't, but if I were to, I'd have to say I have to make these decisions based on how it's going to impact other people, which is exactly what's going on in Romans chapter 14. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, see, because the alcohol of the first century was ham sandwiches and BLTs. That was the thing that was stumbling people and grieving people thinking, wow, that's not right. If your brother is grieved by what you, you eat, or in our case, what you drink, and no, you're no longer walking in love. But what you eat, by what you eat, rather, do not destroy the one for whom Christ has died. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding and do not for the sake of food or drink, in our case, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. And I can say that and I want to say that. You've got the right to drink wine. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Important principle. Another warning. Don't embolden others to sin, which is where Romans 14 goes. We just quoted it. It's not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything. Now he includes alcohol in this statement that causes your brother to stumble. And to stumble means that they're going to be led into sin. If I embolden someone's conscience to do something that they wouldn't otherwise do, but they see me making a claim for godliness, doing the thing that is risky behavior for them, and I embolden them to do it, and their conscience is violated, or they become a drunkard because of it, well, then I'm held accountable. And a passage like this says, don't do that. I got the right to drink. I've said that many times. I could stand at the door with a Budweiser in my hand after every sermon and shake your hand on the way out. I could do that. I would say that wouldn't really be wise for a number of things, the effect that it may have on people. And I think in reality, I may embolden people's conscience, which I've seen happen on multiple occasions, people exercising their freedoms, emboldening people to do something that leads them into a behavior that for them violates their conscience or leads them to some level of mastery or domination or addiction, if you want to use the modern term for it. So I don't want to do that with my liberties. Lastly, I never want to flaunt my freedoms. I just said you have the freedom to drink. Go drink your wine tonight. Great. Don't flaunt it. If you're saying that, you know what, uh, 
you know, I'm not Pastor Mike. I don't have to stand at the door. This is not something, I, you know, it's fine. Great. If it's fine, don't get drunk. I understand that. But the passage ends this way, the faith that you have, which in context is not faith about Christianity, because Christianity is never something that you keep to yourself. This is faith versus the passing judgment on myself, which he's about to say. If you have a clear conscience, the faith that you have, if you have it, keep it between yourself and God. That's fine. Don't meet me at the door going, yeah, you know, you said, you don't know. Well, I, I do. That's great. Great. Keep it between you and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. If you have no reason to pass judgment on yourself for what you approve, and you have your breathalyzer, and you're never inebriated or, or impaired, or you're never led away by this because you're drinking strong drink of the Bible times, then great, have at it. Keep it between you, you and God. Don't flaunt it. Lastly, respond to conflicted feelings. He ends this way in verse 23. Whoever doubts, and this is the contrast between faith and my own heart, doubting, I am starting to condemn myself, then he's condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. He doesn't have the clear conscience. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So if you have misgivings, and I don't want you to have them just because of this lecture. I want you to have them perhaps because of the things that this lecture brought up. What is this doing to those around you? What kind of of emboldening does this do to those who uh, have a propensity for this? But if the qualms or apprehensions or reservations or the compunction or the reluctance in your life surfaces because of anything, whether it's smoking your medicinal marijuana or drinking your alcohol or whatever it might be, If there's conflict there, then you need to respond to those. That one didn't feel good. Not that it has to. Okay. Very unsatisfying. But let's pray. God, sermons are hard in part because I love this church and I love these people. I want what's best for them. I'm not their parent. If I were their parent, I might say different things and more things. But just as their pastor, I want to be careful not to go beyond what Scripture says. I know there's a lot of lying that goes on to obtain prescription drugs. I know there's a lot of abuse of all kinds of pain medications. I know some probably uh, who hear this recording, I don't know about in this room, or may acquire illicit drugs. I know there's probably people that feel the pang of conviction about gluttony. I know some here may think about the obsessive involvement in physical activity and exercise that has just gone way too far in their lives. Whatever it might be regarding our bodies, I know we're so enmeshed in our bodies that what we do with our physical bodies, it affects our spirit and vice versa. But as we think about the effects that we have and how we eat and what we drink or whether we engage in drinking alcohol, all those things have to be carefully considered because the days are evil. There's a lot at stake. Our lives should be distinctive. doesn't mean that everyone in the room has to make the same decisions regarding alcoholic beverages. But God, when it comes to things like that, we, we need to be careful about how we think through it. And God, I know I seem to be a dying breed in pastoral ministry these days. Not many people are refraining. And uh, again, I know as the text says, even about foods there in, in Romans 14, everyone will stand before their own maker and give an account. So I can't overly concern myself with my colleagues in other churches. But all I can do is give the right kind of what I hope is a well-balanced warning to be discerning and wise and careful. And God, I just pray that you would take those principles that we've discussed and allow people to make thoughtful decisions about their own lives, whether it's about exercise or eating or whether it's about fasting or whether it's about uh, drinking, whatever it might be. Let them be careful and thoughtful that they might be able to stand before you with a clear conscience and hear from you, well done, good and faithful servant. So God, we commit this church to you and just pray that ultimately we would be a kind of church that pulls together to do our job in a world that desperately needs a good, strong, solid, healthy church in this part of the world that will 
proclaim the word and, uh, and, and live it out with the kind of uh, life and, and mindset that backs up our words. So God, dismiss us now with a sense of your presence and your oversight in our lives, just knowing that you're the one to whom we have to give an account. And so we're grateful, God, for your provision in our life. Thanks for tonight. Thanks for this time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.